friends, we are here to break the boundaries between your yoga teachers and you. Welcome to Conversations with Yogis. Just a few teachers having a chat over coffee, all things yoga and real life. We are your hosts, Ashley and Melinda. Hello everyone, uh, welcome Elodie to the podcast and when we were discussing with Ashley who we want to invite to talk to and chat to uh, in this podcast, Elodie was also on our list so we are very happy and glad you can make it. So thank you for joining us over Zoom. Would you mind introducing yourself? I'll try my best. <laughs> uh, I'm Elodie, uh, um, I've been teaching yoga for about 10 years now. Um, and prior to that, uh, I trained as a contemporary dancer. So that was my background originally. And then I kind of detoured via event management before ending up teaching yoga. Uh, and then about six and a half years ago now, I decided that I was going to also retrain to be an osteopath because I was very curious about a lot of things and I didn't have many answers. And I was getting annoyed at having to just, just trust other people's responses as opposed to just having my own opinion. And so I went off and did that. So I'm now working as an osteopath and I specialize in treating performers, but not exclusively I treat people from kind of really wide uh, breadth of the population. Uh, and I still spend quite a lot of time teaching on teacher training, whether that's anatomy or kind of co-leading. Um, and while I was studying, I spent kind of two years working as a lead teacher and then head of teaching for Hot Pod Yoga. Nice. You kind of covered everything we will want to ask about, so you're quite amazing with it. Great. <laughs> I think, yeah, because uh, I've always found that with yoga, you get the basics taught on uh, teacher training, but it's like, such a basic that you kind of, I can understand you were curious. And mm. that's what when, I remember when you went to your osteopath course, I was like, I wonder if uh, this made me curious that like, you don't understand all these problems you see and face in classes every day. So I guess it's a natural progression into osteopathy from your dancing to yoga to osteopathy. It's good. Yeah, it's good. It tied it all up in a pretty bow. Whereas before it was just like, oh, I've done this thing here, this thing here, this thing here. And then it's like, look, it now all makes sense. <laughs> yeah. And did it change how you teach yoga classes since you trained in, as, as, an, as an osteopath? Yeah, massively. In some ways it's made me way more relaxed. I think because I came at it from originally from a dance background I was very like it has to be this way technically you know it's like your foot has to be here and no look your foot is pointing slightly over here and you need to bring it slightly forward I was very specific about how I wanted things done or how I thought things should be done and now I'm way less concerned about that because I guess what I understood is that you really can't know what is in front of you, you you know, like such a small percentage of what is happening in that person's body in that pose. But actually, even if you think you're being really specific, you're not, you don't really know what's happening. And a lot of the time it doesn't really matter. The things that matter, generally speaking, yoga teachers are less worried about and I'm more worried about those things, but what it looks like externally, I guess I'm not that worried about now. So it's made me a lot more chilled in some ways as a teacher but I'm like does this feel good to you are you happy here are you doing the action that I want you to be doing rather than the position that I want you to be doing then cool I'm good I'm grand we're all happy here and I think in some ways it's made me less like you know like the discipline is this way you know if people are late I'm like god your life is stressful enough without me being angry about the fact that you are late you do not need that just don't slam around and disturb everyone else but if you're five minutes late I really don't care it's fine and if you need to leave five minutes early I'm also cool with it like it's not my problem just don't disturb everyone else but I'm it's made me a lot more laid back I think yeah I think that comes with like experience teaching too because I, I definitely resonate with a lot of what you just said about, you know, you don't know why somebody's late. It's not because they're not like caring about being at their class. Like maybe something happened on the way there. We live in a big city where anything can go wrong with transit or whatever. Yeah. You know, last um, little bit of work has to be submitted and then off to the yoga class. You can't take that on personally. And then also the way that the postures look for how people are doing them you you have no idea what they're feeling and you can't like put a, a picture of what you think you 
think it should look like on the person. It's more about what you said, like the action of what they're actually doing. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's been a big shift for me. Mm. Yeah, especially because some teacher trainings, they teach teachers uh, like with pictures of postures, how it should look like with like very flexible teachers or very famous teachers. And I think that's very misleading for everyone. I think on Mm. teacher training, we they made us stand in a group of fives and doing the same posture. And then they took us uh, pictures of us and they put it on a big screen. Like, look, you look like this. Look how different she looks like. So they're like, don't expect everyone to look the same. So I was like, okay, that's quite good to know. Still years and years and years of uh, teaching, like, oh, actually looks so different on everyone. It's amazing. Yeah. And it is really hard. You know, I come across this on teacher training a lot because obviously you have to teach something. And so when I say to people, well, but does it really matter, you know, being, which is the answer you don't want when you're new on teacher training, because you're like, I want it to be yes, or I want it to be no. I don't want this middle thing that you're giving me. And I'm like, well, it depends. And well, what do you think? And But how do you know? Do you really know that? And so I appreciate that that's intensely frustrating for people. And they're like, well, what am I meant to teach then? And I get that because you're not coming to do like expressive dance for like an hour that, you know, there is a base shape that you have to kind of go from. So there's limits to that. But when you start teaching, that's so incredibly confusing because you're just like, well, but it's knee over ankle and it's my foot over here and you have to be looking here. And, you know, if it steps out of that, people don't know what to do with it. So it takes a while, I think, to refine the skills to be able to manage that um, uncertainty in the room. Yeah, definitely. Also, they need somewhere to start from, like how a warrior one should look like. So they have a basic idea of basic alignment and then adjust it to the person. So it's hard to be a new yoga teacher because have to learn all the posture names and all the philosophy like so much to learn so and you drop even more depth of anatomy there they're like what the hell what do I do what do I do so it's hard <laughs> yeah um what what brought you to teaching yoga in the first place was that just a curiosity from dance or was there another reason yeah, sort of. I'd been introduced to what I now know is Ashtanga. I didn't know it was Ashtanga at the time. Well, actually, it started even before that. When I auditioned for conservatoire training, when I look at pictures of me now, I was like a stick, like a teenage stick. Um, and they were like, the dancing's great, but we think, we think you're going to struggle when you come here and you have to dance like seven, eight hours a day because you don't have much muscle mass. And so there's a chance that you will suffer. <laughs> so like before you come in the academic year like we'll give you a place but you should try and build some strength and so they recommended I do yoga now yoga in the UK at this time so if we go back that would have been 2005-6 was like way more developed than yoga was in France and so I went back to France and I went to a yoga class and the yoga teacher thought I was a fabulous being because I was so flexible and bendy, but like retrospectively, I was probably had no idea what was going on and it built absolutely no strength. I mean, it wasn't a strength-based class. Like it was just, you just went to Hatha Yoga and that's all there was. There was no other option there. So I don't think me attending that class had the effect that it was meant to have, but I did really enjoy it. Mm-hmm. And then when I went to uni, there was a wonderful teacher there who, started teaching us Ashtanga I didn't remember that it was Ashtanga and she used to do it like off her own back in her own time she was like I'm not a teacher but I practice it and you know if you guys want to learn then I'd love to kind of teach you and I found it so incredibly hard so incredibly hard which is odd when I think what I was putting my body through in training that I found that so hard but I really did um and then I kept kind of doing a little bit of it just in my warm up, that was kind of part of my morning routine, just doing some sun salutations. And that was that, didn't really think think much more of it. And uh, then when I was dancing professionally in London, I used to go to professional classes in the morning and one of my friends was there with me and she was like, oh, do you wanna come to Bikram with me this afternoon? And I was like, what is Bikram? I didn't know what Bikram even was. So I was like, what is that? She's like, oh, it's yoga in this really hot room. And I was like, this sounds absolutely bizarre. And they shout at you quite a lot. And I was like, what is this? But I decided that I was going to come with her. 
So off I went and I was like, this is ridiculously hot and it really smells. It was a studio that used to be in Soho underground. Um, and I thought I kind of enjoyed it, but I was like still no desire to teach. But then I started doing intro offers across the whole of London. I mean, I had no money. So I was like doing hour journeys on a bus to do a class and then an hour back falling asleep on the bus. Um, and so I did Bikram intro offers throughout London as a way to just train my body in a different way. And that was that again, didn't think much more of it. And it's only when I stopped dancing and I started working in events kind of by slight coincidence, then I couldn't go to professional dance classes anymore because the times were obviously within working hours. Um, and so I was like, I need to move because I feel I feel not like myself. So I just Googled hot yoga Clapham. That was just, I was like, that's what I knew. Um, so off I went and it was Yoga Haven and it was a, a hot class that was not Bikram, which I had never come across. So I didn't really know what I was signing up for. And I always remember because it was January, so it was so busy. And the teacher at the end said to me, oh, do you teach? And I was like, oh, my God, no, absolutely not. I really don't teach. But I guess I, I dance. So maybe that's where you're getting that from. I was like, actually, I've never really done this type of class. And I just kept going and I kept going and I was going like three, four times a week before going to work. And I am not an early morning person. So it was really like it kind of hooked me in. Um, and then six months in, I was thinking, I think I'd be quite good at this. But I'm quite an impulsive person. So I was just like, must not jump the gun, must not make a speedy decision. And then six months later, of course, I was on the teacher training. And that was that. But retrospectively, I actually... I didn't know anything about the owners of that yoga school. So I really just jumped like now I would never recommend someone did what I do. All I knew is that most of the teachers in that studio had trained there and I thought they were great. So I was like, well, they're obviously doing something right. And so off I went, but it was a bit of an impulse decision. I think the only thing I did was I emailed them before to say, listen, I've stopped dancing because it's impossible to pay the rent on arts council funding, basically. And I can't retrain to do something else if the yoga world is the same. And so I need you to be honest with me at this point. Like, what are the odds of me actually making a living out of this? And in fairness, they were really upfront and said, listen, you know, you're not going to be a millionaire, but there is space. And particularly, you know, if you develop good skills, like there's definitely space for you to earn a living. But yeah, you're not going to be you know, rolling in cash at the end of the day and throwing notes out of the window, which was, I think was a fair assessment for that time. So I was very grateful for that. Yeah. And I think that's rare people tell you the honesty. And I think people who are applying to teacher trainings nowadays should be told the reality because I don't know when you trained, you trained quite a few years ago. So there wasn't so many people teaching, but now they are like masses of people teaching and doing teacher trainings. So it's changing. Yeah. And, the, you know, the cost of the class, as in what you get paid, is not that different now than it was 10 years ago. So what that amounts to now is so much less. Yeah, there was, um, I don't know if you read it, uh, Norman Blair, like, wrote a blog. And he, he said in that, in 2001, he was getting paid the same, basically the same rate as today in 2023. Well, the going rate for a class, not him personally anymore. But... Yeah, to read that was quite shocking for for anyone, I think. Mm. Yeah, but it's good to know. We, we've talked about that a little bit on our other episodes. Um, but I, I kind of, you just went into that a little bit about how you went to yoga to work on strength for your dance. We were wondering what your thoughts are of only doing yoga as exercise and if it's enough or if people should be doing something else, what would you recommend? Mm. I always think people should be doing something else. I don't really think any form of exercise is, you know, complete being, you know, if you're really doing one discipline, yoga is brilliant in terms of brilliant for regulating your nervous system, particularly if it's taught more intelligently. Um, it can be brilliant for your strength, you know, if you're doing those more dynamic things, but it loads very similar areas very repetitively. Okay. So, you know, even last week or a few weeks ago, so I've been training with this PT for the last few months, partially because I dislocated or partially dislocated both my shoulders back in October while I was teaching. 
<laughs> and I was just like, that's because I've stopped tra- strength training and I really need to do that again because this is what happens. So I started strength training again with him and he kind of did a basic fitness test with me and he was like, oh, you're one of the strongest women we train here. And in my head, I was thinking, I'm really not. You've just tested me on the stuff that I'm good at. If you tried to get me to do one single pull up, you would see that I'm like a wet cat hanging off a ring. It's just there's nothing there. And so then a few weeks in, he was just like, cool, we're going to do eccentric pull ups. So not even the coming up to the bar bit, but just lowering down slowly. And I was like, I think you're being over ambitious, but I'll give it a go. And I think he was shocked because it was so not in line with the rest of my strength. But then I was thinking, well, yeah, actually in yoga, we never train biceps because, yeah, chaturanga, but you're going with gravity. So actually your biceps do nothing. So then I started training bicep curls with weights like some kind of old man in the gym. And now I can do some eccentric pull ups. I still can't pull myself the whole way up. Right. But it just goes to show that like then you can be so weak in other places, you know, where it's like I could pike press, but I couldn't do a pull up. Yeah. How is that a thing? And it's just because that's how I'm used to training my body. And so I don't really think it it can, you know, it's not good for your cardio, you know, not good enough. It's like, great. Yes. If you're doing rocket, sure. You're getting a bit of a cardio workout, but you're not going to be spiking your heart rate to 160 beats per minute. That's just not going to happen. So you're not getting that kind of very intense cardio. So definitely for me, if I'm thinking of things to complement cardio, it doesn't need it to be an hour of cardio. It's just about spiking your heart rate a few times, weight training, posterior chain stuff. So hamstrings, glutes, back. Back is often very weak in, in yoga students. I find uh, pulling things, you know, all of that kind of stuff, compound movement, Um and you know sometimes people like well I don't like doing any of those things which I understand um so you know then you can make it a little bit more playful so things like um climbing's really great if you're doing it more regularly uh, I even think if you've got a good swim you know actually if you're if you crawl you're working against the resistance of the water so technically that is like a pulling action so there's quite a few things you could be doing alongside um reformer pilates i really like but again it has to be quite targeted because it has the ability to look a lot like yoga in terms of what is happening within it so it has to be axed towards more pulling movements and all of this kind of stuff Mm. okay something something to consider (laughs) for me anyways because like personally like i um i do ashtanga yoga i do rocket yoga and then i cycle yeah that's all i do so yeah. maybe maybe some cardio needs to be thrown in there, some weight, weight stuff. Go up those hills on your bike. <laughs> Pardon? Go up those hills on your bike. Oh, I know. I bought an e-bike too. So oh! like, I, I noticed um, like today in Rocket this morning I went, I'm like, oh, my legs feel a little bit shaky. I'm like, oh, it's because I haven't been cycling really that hard for the last month. I'm like pros and cons of having the e-bike right yeah I think also there's you know if you think particularly for women as they age bone density is a real thing you know to consider and I think that's a capital you build up younger and so for me the weight thing is also really important from that perspective um and a lot of people who practice yoga are very mobile not everyone but you have to think the people who come to yoga and stay are the people who didn't find 90 percent of it hard they're the people who found 40% of it hard. If you found 90% of the class ridiculously hard, the odds of you coming back, I would say are quite low. So it's kind of self-selective in that there's already people who have a baseline of mobility who are coming back to it. And so kind of self-selectively, you end up with a group of people who are generally on the bendier side of the spectrum. You know, when I treat yoga teachers or yoga practitioners that are a bit more serious, they're like, oh, I'm very stiff. And then they roll down and their fingers are on the floor. And I'm like, you know, in the normal world, that is very flexible. That's not that's not stiff just because you can't get your hands flat on the floor. And so sometimes they're not very good at managing that range of motion. So, again, the strength training from that perspective helps with that kind of ability to contain and control the range, which I think is important and is important within the context of the yoga practice. It's like actually it will improve your yoga practice, not hinder it. Absolutely. Yeah, I think for me, like inversions, because I've been always so bendy, 
until I started going to the gym and just doing some kind of weightlifting. I couldn't even hold my headstand very comfortably. But after that, I was like, no, now I'm like, oh, I can hold things. So for me, I actually needed to go and lift some weight. And it's very alien for me because I don't know how to do it. But I think it's important people know that sometimes yoga isn't enough and it's nice to complement it with other things. Yeah. Yeah. And like with the aging thing too, um, with aging, I, I feel it a little bit like I'm 39 right now and I definitely don't feel like I did like four or five years ago. I feel like, um, the activity level has to be maintained. Otherwise I, I feel like the muscle mass, muscle density, like goes very quick, quickly. And then you feel more sensitive in your, in your bones and your joints. Mm. if that makes sense so I'm like okay get on this now because what's going to happen is you're only going to like age a little bit more going forward and we got to maintain that yeah okay and you were were saying um that uh, you trained as an osteopath because you heard lots of different things like some people are saying this is good this is bad so is there any big myth or anything that you would want to share like you hear or see on Instagram and like, oh my God, people saying this and it's just wrong. Yeah, I mean, it's always tricky, isn't it? Because sometimes on Instagram, I think people like a bit of clickbait. You know, there's a reason why people are posting things. I want people to engage with it, which is fine. Um, What I would say is often Instagram doesn't leave a lot of room for nuance. Again, you know, it's that maybe it depends. Well, what about this person? And you don't have all of that time to kind of, go through that on Instagram but I think you know the things I hear a lot even just on teacher training you know it's like things like putting your foot against your knee you know like that the in in tree being a problem and I'm like if your knee is non-injured the odds of something bad happening with your foot against your knee are close to nil as in like it's just you run so you're happy to say that the force going through your leg while you're running is fine but the force of your little foot against your leg is not okay. Like, as in to me that it's just the logic of that is really flawed. Mm. Um, The one that I really struggle to understand is, you know, saying things like, oh, going from an open hip to a closed hip, for example. So say like half moon to a standing split is a problem, but I'm like, but you're happy to go from warrior one to warrior two so why and then that was because you're not standing on one leg I'm like but the movement in the hip is basically the same you're going from one rotation to another why is it okay there and not okay when you're standing on one leg and again if you think of the amount of force that goes through the hip the rest of the time again it just doesn't make sense yeah sure if you've got someone with arthritis in their hip that's fairly advanced it might be quite irritating but as in is that what we're talking about and generally speaking it's not what we're talking about we're just talking general population Mm. which again it's just the lack of nuance there's lots of things you know around oh you mustn't forward fold after you've backed bend back bended that's not the verb but that's what we go that's where we're going with it um but I'm just like but why you know there's just all of these things of like oh well if you twist right you must twist left I'm like so if you turn around in the car to put your seatbelt on do you turn the other way just to make sure that it's even because then it's fine nothing bad is going to happen it's just these kind of little like obsessions that we kind of have developed within yoga world you know the thing of like not letting your knee go past your ankle you know if you speak to anyone in a manual therapy role they laugh you out of the room it's like well what happens when you go down the stairs what happens when you sit down your knees goes past your ankle all the time like isn't it just doesn't make sense mm-hmm. um and I guess in some ways it doesn't matter you know you could keep your knee over your ankle it doesn't matter it's not, if nothing bad is going to happen but I think what it does do is it creates this illusion that people's bodies are weak or fragile and that's quite dangerous for the for the student population that's in the room. Not for everyone, but you don't really know who you're speaking to. And I guess for me, when I have people who come into the treatment room and see me as an osteopath, a lot of the times they have these weird ideas or what appears weird to me about what their body should be able to do and shouldn't be able to do or things that are right and things that are wrong. And often they've got that from just, you know, culture, what is around them. But a lot of that, I think, comes from the fitness world in general. And I'm going to lump yoga into that, you know, like movement kind of classes. 
PT as well, you know, all of these kind of things where they hear something from someone that they really trust. And so then it's much harder for me, who's met them for like 15 minutes, to change their mind if for 10 years they've been listening to this person they like and trust tell them the exact opposite of what I'm trying to get them to understand. Um, so I think, you know, we're really worried about things that are not really a concern of the time for the rest of the world. Um, and I've definitely had extended conversations with yoga teachers, you know, where I've been teaching, for example, rolling up through the spine who are telling me, well, that's dangerous. And I'm like, excuse me? <laughs> like, but why? And, you know, yes, if you have someone who's got really advanced osteoporosis, then yes, you wouldn't be doing that. But for anyone else, it's like, but so what? You think flexion of the spine is bad, what you're telling me? But I was like, but you're happy to do a cat-cow. So what? what's the, you know, I, I can't, and obviously I can't get through because that's someone's belief that they hold very close and they have, you know, it's very strong. So I'm very aware that I'm not going to change their mind in 15 minutes. It's just not going to happen. And I'm like, if you don't want to teach that, that's cool. But don't say to people that flexing their spine is dangerous because that causes a huge amount of problems down the line when that person develops back pain or when they develop something else and they refuse to flex their spine or it's actually their, their spine has to flex in life. You can't go through life without, you know, there's no, in my opinion, there is no like bad movement inherently. There's a bad movement for a specific person who may have a specific thing going on. But, you know, it's like we always think, oh, we shouldn't twist your knee. Well, rotation is a movement of the knee, like as in it's a natural movement of the knee. If you have an arthritic knee, you often start to lose that rotation. So why are we saying that you can't rotate your knee? You know, it's just like there's all these kind of things. But if you look at, say, dancers who are doing voguing, you know, and then they're dropping down to the floor on a bent leg. I mean, I'm not advising most people go off and do that. But, you know, their knee 90% of the time is fine. So that's not to say that if they're doing it every day, 15 times a day, that their knee might not take a bit of a brunt of it down the line. But if you then compare that to not having your knee over your ankle in Warrior 2, frankly, what are you worried about? So, yeah, there are a few. <laughs> I've, I've heard of some of those. I haven't heard the rolling up the spine thing. Do you mean like from Ragdoll rolling up yeah. standing? Yeah. Oh, okay. No, I've never heard that. But I think like... Like that goes back to what we were talking just right at the beginning of the conversation where people want to know if it's right or it's wrong and how to do it. And it's like, okay. And then they get in their mind when they're learning, like there's one way to do it. I heard my teacher say this a bunch of times and that's the only way to do it. So it's black and white instead of like this giant gray and gray area where it's different for everybody who's practicing and people have to listen to their own body yeah and I think the way we speak in yoga doesn't always help yeah. you know we use this very like imagery based you know language which I think sometimes means that we don't end up saying what we mean and meaning what we say you know so it's like we'll say roll up one vertebrae at a time well actually biomechanically that's entirely impossible so whilst it doesn't matter but you know that phrase just gives someone an image that they think that is a possibility it's not physically humanly possible so you know it's just there's a lot of phrasing like that you know even silly stuff where we'll say breathe into your belly everyone knows what we're saying but it's not like you have lungs in your belly yeah so you know people then get a bit sometimes they just have this image of what is actually happening in their body which is completely the opposite of what is actually happening yeah the rolling down or rolling up one vertebrae at a time like I thought there was something wrong with my spine because I couldn't do that <laughs> and, I'm like, and I'm like oh part of my spine is fused whatever but like you know you you create that imagery of like roll down with control and like part of you is going to drop down and move together but yeah the belly breath too oh we wanted to ask you about um Ujjayi breathing because we've heard <laughs> a lot of well, a few people like this goes back to social media about like saying they don't practice or teach Ujjayi breath anymore um, because they get like, I don't know, nodules on their throat or I forget all the reasons, but I just wanted to hear what, what your thoughts were on that. 
Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen I haven't seen that particular thing. Um, I'm imagining they're talking about nodules on their vocal cords. So it basically means that if you get like, it's normally people like professional singers, people teachers use their voice a lot will will sometimes get these where essentially you get increased friction between some of your vocal cords. And it's almost like you develop a callus, you know, on your hand, it's kind of that similar idea. And so then they don't kind of contact together quite the same. So the, the, the sound of the voice becomes quite croaky. And particularly within with singers, that will become a bit of a problem if they're trying to push their voice, because obviously they can't kind of push the air out quite in the same way. Um, so I'm presuming it's coming from that. Personally, I do teach Ujjayi breath. I don't impose it. So I'm like, if it's not for you or whatever, just breathe in and out through your nose. The reason I like Ujjayi breath is it helps you to slow down your breathing because you're you're creating more airway resistance. So you can slow down the breath. If you're slowing it down enough, theoretically, you could be doing things like increasing your tolerance to carbon dioxide, whether that's enough to actually do that. I'm not really on that side of things. I don't know, but there's an, you know, the logic of that makes sense. Um, I guess it's also how like loud people are with their J breath. You know, if people are being quite aggressive with it, yes, it's going to put extra stress on someone's vocal folds. But again, you know, there's spectrums. I guess whenever I teach it, I often say, don't breathe aggressively. You know, it shouldn't feel aggressive. <laughs> so it's like when there's this like, you know, then that's probably too much. And if I was teaching, say, a professional singer, one to why impose J breath probably not because their voice is already under a lot of stress and then maybe creating an extra stress there that's not necessary but yeah I haven't heard that particular claim and you know so I don't I don't know what the context is but it's not something I'm particularly worried about unless you know I'm working with someone where I know their voice is a big part of what they do I feel like you have to be practicing a lot of yoga for that to be you know, I'd almost be more worried about it in yoga teachers who are using their voice constantly. So their voices are probably already fatigued and then they're layering possibly an extra stressor on their voice. But you don't hear of yoga teachers walking around with modules on their vocal cords that frequently. Mm. I don't know any, you know, not to say there are no, none out there, but it's like, it's not like it's, you know, I hear way more yoga teachers telling me they've stressed their hamstring or they've injured their wrist or they've lost their voice because they've been teaching too much. So yeah, you could say, well, is it because they're also practicing a lot and they're fatiguing their voice? You know, who knows? Without the data out there, it's hard to really comment because it just ends up being anecdotal evidence. You know, it's like saying, oh, well, you shouldn't handstand because I injured my wrist in a handstand. It's like, well, you did. That doesn't necessarily mean everyone else will. Like if you don't have the data, it's hard to, you know, and I did, you know, had a quick look. There's not really any anything out there to suggest anything around the, on those lines that's very you know accessible in any case yeah okay thank you for clarifying that like on a like on a personal note I used to practice ujjayi breath uh when I was practicing yoga but I didn't have a speaking job and now like because I speak so much I still practice it but it's really quiet so my, that might be a like an example people can yeah like how to vary vary it and and make it more personal yeah absolutely because if you are making it super loud you are creating more of that kind of friction and fatigue um so yeah I would definitely you know there are levels as to what you do with that and I guess the thing is this is again where it's kind of hilarious is that every teacher will teach you slightly differently to me it's not something I should be able to hear from the other side of the room but, you know, you go to some classes and like the whole room is like, you know, it's really loud. And again, you know, I went to a class this morning and that particular studio, they seem to groan. It's a thing. So everyone groans in the class, which I find quite disconcerting. <laughs> but, you know, it's obviously a thing in that studio. And it works for the people who that so it's like every class you go there's going to be variations on how that breath is taught and what people expect from it and there's kind of trends in different studios and with different teachers so again it's quite funny within that context because it's like we're sort of expecting that the same thing is being taught everywhere but the reality it isn't even for the same technique 
Ah, that's so true. It's I think it's it's so different in every studio. And what about like bandas? Um, because I think also like many people don't even know what bandas are. So, yes. I mean, in rocky rocky classes, you talk about mula banda checkups, and people kind of know, but still don't know what mula banda is. Or like I used to talk, start my classes with like talking through the bandas quickly, but then I don't really functionally said like how they how you use them throughout the class. And I guess also like some people like, but do you engage with abundance throughout the whole class? Like, oh my God, no, how, like you can't do that. Like, how would you do that anyway? But yes, abundance. Yeah, bandas is a tricky one because I think what we've done is we've taken an energetic concept, you know, which is mulabanda, uliyarabanda, jaldarabanda, and we've taken that energetic concept and translated it into something physical, you know, for our understanding and purposes. So it's almost like we've layered two separate concepts onto each other that sort of make sense, but don't really correlate. And then, yeah, you'll hear a lot of like, keep Mulabanda engaged all the time. But I'm like, your pelvic floor is taking such a beating. If what you've taken from that is I need to keep my pelvic floor engaged all the time. Your pelvic floor also works with your diaphragm. So it's meant to kind of respond to what is happening above so that you keep a, a particular abdominal pressure within the space between your diaphragm and your pelvic floor. Problems if that pressure is too low, problems if that pressure is oh, like that area is overpressurized all the time. So if you're keeping your pelvic floor engaged all the time and then your diaphragm is basically descending against that and you're not getting any relaxation of your pelvic floor at all, you're just building additional pressure in that abdominal cavity which obviously if you're doing that for a short time, not necessarily a problem. But what you do see in younger people, particularly in athletic um, populations, you see it in gymnasts, you see it in dancers, you see, you know, will have like stress incontinence issues. And it's because they don't know how to relax their pelvic floor. And so often it's not because their pelvic floor is weak, it's the opposite, it's kind of engaged all the time. And that's caused issues with their sometimes the digestive system their urinary system so it, you need to be able to relax your pelvic floor and a lot of the time people don't fully know how to access that and so by cueing that which we're almost causing a, a kind of dysfunction within the pelvic floor if someone is actually applying that and it's just should be something you don't really have to think about, right? Obviously, after pregnancy, you might have to do things like retraining your pelvic floor and retraining your pelvic floor with your breath. But outside of that, it's something that hopefully should just be reflexive and you're not having to kind of consciously think about your pelvic floor. Personally, in my yoga practice, full disclosure, I absolutely never think about my pelvic floor, not once. <laughs> so um, that's <laughs> full disclosure, never happens. You know, unless I'm doing like a breath work, thing where you're kind of then doing a breath hold with bander engagement etc that's a bit different but in terms of movement I never think about it mm. never ever 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 um obviously if you're doing things like presses and stuff like that it's gonna happen but it's not like going and oh, squeeze you know it's more the ceiling of kind of hollowing out which actually I would equate more to things like Udiana where you're kind of really getting that kind of lift under the ribcage, that kind of bracing of TVA that's kind of give, going to give you that stability element. But yeah, I think it's, I, I never cue pelvic floor or mulabanda. If you want to make those two things the same thing or separate, I kind of view them as slightly separate, but I, I never cue it from a movement perspective. I will cue breathing like when we're not moving in terms of like really trying to get diaphragmatic breathing because again that's something people sometimes really just can't get which I think until I started treating people I never realized how dysfunctional people's breathing can be mm. some patients I just can't get them to let go of their belly at all their abdominals are just constantly tensioned um so I guess that's made me filter more of those really simple breathing techniques into classes which hopefully also has like an impact on pelvic floor and how that's working but yeah I don't really tend to to cure it specifically because I just think hopefully things short will just happen and in someone who's moving normally globally it should but obviously you don't know so mm. who are you speaking to again it comes back to who are you speaking to in the room every single person which one yeah yeah, yeah. another one of those things it's not just like black and white no. Um, like when I was when I was younger before yoga 
I didn't do any exercise. Um, so I feel like when I came into yoga, I had a really dysfunctional or unfunctional pelvic floor and diaphragm. And that's something that I had to learn through the practice of like this new part of my body that moved. So it's interesting to me that I, I didn't know people would have it engaged all the time in any respect. I just think it's more of an energetic awareness of drawing. Mm -hmm. So you're, I imagine it like your ankles are a little bit lighter and you're trying to lift up your arches of the feet. And it, it's more of a, just a, a slight lift, not a tense muscle engagement or intense movement. Yeah, I agree. I think it's more that kind of feeling of lifting slightly upwards, but I, yeah, I don't really think about it as like a pelvic floor. It, it's not like doing a Kegel. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's, it's different. It's a different situation. Yeah. I think also that's why it's important. Like what I say to my students, like why it work, works well with us with Ashley on retreats that we have different approaches, different cues on things or different beliefs as well with the movement. And I always say to the students, like, what I say to you or teach you might might really resonate with you. And it's like, oh yeah, I can understand now what I need to do. And some people are like, mm, no, not really. So I think it's like every teacher has their own cues and what works for them, they teach it and then really works for some people. But then some people are like, I, I don't know what you're talking about and, and they don't understand. And I think, and that's, that's okay. So I think students need to know as well that what I say, it's not always going to be perfect for everyone. And we're just trying to teach for masses. Yoga was taught one-on-one, -on -one, not to like 20 people. So we can't reteach one-on-one. -on -one. And when students ask me in class, like, but how, what do I do now? It's like, I don't really have time to be like teaching one person within a class because it's impossible because you're so different. Also, I don't know your body that well. And that's why you need to know your body enough to be like, does it feel good? Should I do this? Should I not, not do this? Or, and it comes with practice and experience and coming back to your teacher and asking questions, being curious. Yeah. Is there anything you guys want to talk about? Anything you wanted to mention, Elodie? Anything you heard or anything you want to share? No, I think nothing kind of specific. I guess my big thing now when I'm teaching both trainees that are becoming teachers or people who are on advanced training with new teachers it's more challenging because I think there's so much to think about so then have to think about the technicality of how you teach is just like another level but um I think it's still we always need to be refining how we say things or why we're saying things and I think that's what makes someone a good teacher now you know it's not how clever their cueing is or you know it's just about why have you chosen to say something and I think the more I teach the less I say because <laughs> I'm just like well you're good you know I don't need to say it so I say less and I count breath more uh, and also because I don't tend to teach that many beginners so I have the luxury of being able to do that obviously if you're teaching someone from scratch you're always going to have more to say but I think that's the thing that really develops a teacher now. It's constantly thinking about the way you deliver something. And I think if I go away from the class, the thing I'm mostly thinking about, if I'm thinking, oh, I could have done that better, is always around language and how you can get someone to pick something up so easily rather than making it really convoluted and complicated. And I think we've got to a point in yoga where we're really overcomplicating stuff and it can be much simpler. So I think that's my, my like little thing that I constantly kind of come across and see. Yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, overcomplication of anatomy and what you can and can't do and can and can't say in the yoga world. It's just, it gets so confusing, especially for new yoga teachers trying to learn anatomy and how to cue all at once and, you know, trying to memorize what they can and can't say or feeling like they're going to injure somewhat someone by saying something so I think there's power in just having one or two intentional cues and then giving silence for somebody to look into their own body and and offer a question well, what do you feel here where can you engage yes. where can you soften I think those are really powerful cues you can give someone to someone uh, to figure it out for themselves rather than me being like engage your bicep put your hand here put your knee here more of a, a feeling is yes. what 
I try to instill onto my students. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, this it should always be about trying to give people agency within the class, give them the power to make decisions. You know, and we're always talking about hands-on assist constantly. This seems to be this big thing, you know, but like constantly talking about the ins and outs of this. And it's interesting, a few months ago, I was teaching an assist course and I had a very experienced Ashtanga teacher on the course, but he trained years and years and years and years ago and he had a lot of feedback that his assists were too forceful and the students were not appreciating it. And I was like, I sort of wonder why he's here because I feel like he's probably really good at assisting. You know, I was like, he's been a teacher for many years. And he was like, it's kind of opened my eyes as to how I can assist differently without being, you know, I learned so long ago that the ethos around assisting was so different to what the ethos around assisting might be now. And actually, like, I've taken so much out of this, which was great because it was such a, a change in approach. But again, you know, it's like we talk about assist being this blanket thing and it's it's not a blanket thing because it depends how it's delivered and the conversation I hear over and over and over again with yoga teachers now is, oh, well, I don't ask for injuries because, you know, I don't, I'm not a doctor, I'm not a physio, not a, I don't know what to do with it. I'm like, if you're putting your hands on people, you kind of have to ask, as in, if you are putting your hands on people, you have to ask, A, for consent for that, but also for injuries, because otherwise you like you don't know what you're dealing with it's not about you know whether you're able to give them a diagnosis or rehab advice or any of any of that it's just about being able to look after people in the space you know I went to a class again with a really experienced teacher last week I have obviously I've popped out both my shoulders in October in the class you wouldn't know but there are particular things I don't want to be assisted in because I'm nervous. I don't want to be assisted in a wheel. Wheel was a pose I could do with my eyes closed and now I can get there, but it's not comfortable and I have to be quite mindful. And this teacher didn't ask for for injury, so I assumed that he would not be assisting. And then we got to wheel and he held my legs and then put his foot through my legs into my back to push me more into my shoulders. And I was like, oh my God. But, you know, you're just thinking, like, if I had told, if you knew what had happened, there was no way you'd be doing this to me. There was no way on this planet because you'd be so worried that my arms are going to end up on the floor. Which I was just like, this illustrates perfectly why you have to ask. (laughs) And I just find that dialogue a bit, um, it's a bit of a cop out for teachers. You know, I was saying, oh, well, I don't ask because I didn't know what to do with it. And I'm like, but but do do you assist? And if the answer is yes, I feel like there's no real excuse not to. And it's just about kind of inclusion, which I think, you know, if someone came with one leg to class, you wouldn't expect them to do the same class as someone with two legs. And it's kind of the same. If someone's coming in and they've got an injured shoulder, they need to be included in the class as much as possible. There's limitations to what you can do in a group class but you want to try your best to include people. And I think by not asking, we make people quite nervous because sometimes they just want to tell you that they're not going to be doing the same thing as anyone else because they're freaking out that you're going to think they're rude. And so I think, you know, it's important to kind of step out of being really like, oh, well, I don't ask because I don't know what to do with it. And just think a bit broader picture rather than, oh, well, now you have to give rehab advice because you definitely don't. But I think it's just that kind of sometimes there's a bit of complacency in yoga of just finding this one thing and going, oh, well, that's my way out. So I just won't do it. So I think that's the other thing that I see a lot of conversations that I have a lot again and again and again with teachers and trainees around this particular topic. I Yeah, I agree. You need you need to ask every time, especially if you are touching people and um, cause you know, if they, if you have like a particularly sore neck or shoulder and they just don't want to be touched there, you need to, you need to know that rather than going like doing whatever you were going to do. It makes people heard, um, seen in the class. And also whenever I didn't know something that someone told me, it gave me an opportunity to learn. I'd go home mm. and I would research what they told me because 
we're not doctors. We're, we're not qualified to be giving advice unless you have that qualification in whatever it is, but it's a learning opportunity. And this is a job where we need to be continually expanding our knowledge and becoming aware of like how, how bodies work, how individuals vary, you know, from hypermobility to stiffness, to shoulder rotations and et cetera, et cetera. Like we need to learn over time. And if you're not listening to people, what people are telling you, then you're, that's a missed learning opportunity as well. I think. I agree. It's food for thought, but I think people, teachers need to know that it's okay if you said the wrong things, but just learn from it. Or, you know, we all make mistakes. We, I probably have said things that I'm like, oh my God, I'm so embarrassed about now, but you know, you learn and that's important to just educate yourself and question what you hear, what you see on Instagram and, try to see and keep educating yourself but yeah it was very interesting no one no one is perfect no one is perfect and you know in five years time we'll have other information that kind of contradicts what we have now and you know no one you can just try your best that's the only thing you can do is try your best. I mean I look I remember telling someone to put their mat back down and get back into shavasana <laughs> oh my god I'm so embarrassed um because they were trying to leave and I was like you will not leave I'm like who is that person Ah!" (laughs) if you are listening to this I am sorry I'm sorry if I was you (laughs) yeah I'm yeah I can't think of anything like that but I have like I've embarrassed myself so many times teaching yoga and like you know you especially even still I look at everybody in the room I'm like everybody is doing not what I told them what to do what did I say guys like I don't even remember I just had like a little moment there but yeah it's a learning process every day for sure but yeah thank you very much Elodie for sharing all your knowledge it was very insightful and there's so many things you can still talk about but we would we would need to have a very very long podcast for that um so yeah if there is nothing else I think yeah we are thank you for your attendance and for chatting with us yeah thank you so much thanks for having me thank you for listening to our latest podcast episode we just wanted to let you know about an upcoming event that melinda and i are hosting together in october it's our first collaborative day retreat in london and it's on saturday october 21st in Canada Water, Surrey Keys area in South London. It's on my website currently, ashleyarensyoga.com, and you can see all the info for joining there. We'd love to see you there, and we have early bird prices on until the end of August. Have an awesome day, guys. Thanks for listening. Bye.